Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. Today, I'm joined by nutritionist Victoria Fenton. Victoria specializes in a particular area of nutrition, centralizing on our gut and our microbiome. Today, she's joining us live all the way from South Africa. And I think what you're going to learn about the gut, the microbiome, and in fact, the entire inner workings of the human body fascinating. Victoria, thank you for joining us. Um, for those who don't know, uh, you're dining in live from uh, South Africa. Uh, mm -hmm. So thank you for taking the time out for that. Um, tell us about yourself. Also, tell us why you're in South Africa. Give us a bit of an introduction and then we'll see which way the conversation goes today. Okay, well, it's lovely to be here, first of all. Um, my name is Victoria. I'm a functional medicine practitioner, nutritionist, naturopath, Put any label on it you want. I do a lot of stuff in, in lifestyle medicine, essentially. So nutritional and lifestyle medicine. Um, and my practice ranges from complex chronic illness all the way through to health optimization, biohacking, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I got into it and I have a very specific specialism with connective tissue disorders because I have a connective tissue disorder myself, which took a long time to get diagnosed. And then I didn't get any help for it. So I kind of had to make up my own health packages and and that's now what i give to a lot of people with connective tissue disorders globally so i run a global practice all virtual and has been virtual for a long time um i'm in south africa because um i can be anywhere because i run everything virtually um and i moved here sort of a few weeks before the coronavirus pandemic hit so it's kind of been locked down here rather than getting home which has been interesting but it's uh, strange times globally, but that's why I'm currently in South Africa. But the long-term plan is to be a bit in the UK and a bit here, so. Sounds wonderful. Absolutely wonderful, I love South Africa. So talk to me about this specific uh, illness that you had, what it means, because it's not one that most people will have heard of before. Uh, and then, you know, and, and then how do you advise people that have got the same um, uh, condition to, to, to live healthier? Sure. So I have a condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and it's quite a rare um, connective tissue disorder, but other people will know things like hypermobility. So if you're a bit flexible, you have joints that are a bit flexible, perhaps you're an athlete or a dancer, and you, you've always known that you, you've got a bit more bend in you than other people, or you're great at yoga, you've probably got slight hypermobility. When that gets to being a problem with your connective tissue, so the collagen is so weak that there is quite a lot of vulnerability, you start to get labels of conditions. And Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is one of them. It's a very complicated condition, mostly because it's poorly understood. So there's many types. Um, I, we don't really know what type I have, although we think it's a classic type, which means that I get a lot of gastrointestinal involvement. Um, and I actually got ill when I was 17 and I ruptured my esophagus when I was on holiday, um, which was scary and shocking, but I didn't know I had any kind of connective tissue disorder. So 
my journey took me into conventional medicine in a very negative way, actually. It was a very hard time to go through misdiagnoses, misunderstanding. And it took me eight years to get my Ehlers-Danlos syndrome diagnosis. But when I did, obviously within conventional medicine, there's a lot of medication solutions. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is complicated, particularly when there's a gut involvement, because so much of medications is metabolized through the gut or the liver, and it becomes very difficult. You get a lot of reactions. I also had coexisting conditions. One was postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, lots of long words, but it basically is a blood pressure issue. It's an autonomic nervous system issue where you can't regulate your blood pressure when you stand up and lie down. Um, so lots of dizziness, lots of walking into the roads, not really spatially aware um, and I also have mast cell activation disorder um, and that's an immune-based condition where your immune cells the mast cells are immune cells which hold all of the little um, fighter molecules and the angry chemicals that we release whenever we get a, a reaction to things well in mast cell activation disorder they're either gathered in the wrong place or they're too weak and fragile so they burst quite easily so with this kind of trifecta is what it's called, I ended up really quite ill. Um, and the solutions were medications, none of which I could take because I reacted to all of them. So you end up actually feeling very unsupported by conventional medicine. But when you take a step back, functional medicine is actually built on systems biology. And systems of the body all work interconnectedly. So they connect to one another and they interact. So I sort of took this really reductionist view and thought, well, if I can work out how the systems work and just help the systems, I can support my body to heal and to thrive. So for me, that was looking at digestive system a lot, immune system, and also the nervous system, which undercuts quite a lot of this and is very indicated um, in a lot of the, the coexisting conditions within Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So there was a lot of focus on uh, nutrition, uh, gut healing, gut health generally, um, inflammation lowering, um, supporting the, the nervous system and its communication, and then su supporting general nutrient absorption, etc., and supporting the liver. And actually, when you look at that and you think about that little list, that's just health in general. <laughs> that's not me being special with a connective tissue disorder. That's literally just general health. So I suddenly realized that actually... I might be an extreme case of what it means to be a human being, but I'm just a set of interconnected systems. And I can apply all of the systems biology that we use in terms of gut healing, lowering inflammation, supporting detoxification, et cetera, with patients who have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome like I do, but also any condition from autoimmunity to complex chronic gut pathologies, through to things like cancer and, and other more serious issues or, or life-threatening issues where generally supporting human physiology and human systems is a very, it's a very sensible strategy to general healthcare. And, and is it, as we talk a lot here, about trying to live as naturally as possible, avoiding you know, chemicals where you can, creams, potions, lotions, uh, you know, toxins from cars, is it, is it living as you know, maximizing the nutrition, trying to get as much, you know, good nutrition as opposed to in the UK, as you know, we, we all eat way too much. We're overfed but undernourished. So is it a case of trying to cut down certain things and then really ramping up, you know, good nutrition? And is that kind of the, the way you've, because, you know, for the last five minutes as you've been talking, I'm like, I'm going, my God, this is so complicated. You've got so many different things you've had to figure out. But then you, then you brought it around beautifully at the end saying they're kind of all interconnected 
into just applying that lifestyle changes to what sounds like a real complicated mix of, of conditions? It's exactly that, actually. And actually, there's a really simple sentence to undercut all of it. It's not complicated at all. It's just managing stress. That's literally it. But then you just expand your understanding of what stress is. And stress includes chemicals, toxins, pollutants, junk stuff in food, you know, anything over-processed that makes no sense to, like, non-chemical degree people. <laughs> like, that's just not good for the human body. So reducing stress on every level is how to stay healthy as a human being. And it's more important, well, I say more important, but I get more consequences when I don't manage my stress. Um, but I just think it's important for general health. So yes, it's removing the junk, it's eating. Naturally is a really good word because we're not, we don't, that's not a diet. That's not prescribing a diet. That's just saying, eat real food. Like eat real food, it's as simple as that. Um, and obviously there's nuances. And if you have digestive conditions, we play a little bit with food combining. We remove fiber for a bit if we need to. We can treat, I do a lot of treatment protocols for people who've got bacterial dysbiosis, which is just a fancy word again for imbalance of gut bacteria, which can happen from antibiotics when you're a child, eating a lifetime of standard American diet, which is just basically refined rubbish. And it's not always a simple switch, just eat more fiber and veggies and you're fine. Sometimes it is. But ultimately, it's just a case of, the more true to human health your life can be, which means looking after your vehicle rather than treating it like an appendage that you have to drag around with you, then the healthier you will be, whether you have a complicated genetic condition like I do or not. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a, you know, the standard American diet, which is kind of the standard global diet for the yeah. westernized world. If anybody just stops and thinks about it for a second, the three letters, standard American diet, S-A-D, sad. I mean, that is what it is. It is so sad for our body that ten, you know, many, many people, if they don't stop and think about the food they eat and just go through life, you know, eating the McDonald's and the, in the UK, the Greggs and the, you know, and the Burger Kings or whatever it is, and don't stop and think about it we're overfeeding but we're not getting all that nutrition that you know for yeah. two two million years uh, as made us the human beings that we are today you know with our bodies are some of i guess two million years of evolution and therefore you know it needs you know the magnesium the zinc all the things that we get from only eating real real foods so let's mm -hmm. let's pick up one of those uh, topics and because uh, lots of topics we, we go in any direction talk to yourself because you're so brilliant um let, let's talk then about the gut Let's assume somebody hasn't had antibiotics recently, because uh, that's a again, different conversation. But let's just assume somebody's been eating the standard American diet, and, we, and, and uh, you know, maybe they're sort of struggling, maybe they're a little bit of IBS or something they can't put their finger on. Uh, how do we start to look after our gut? Let's pretend it's part of an engine of a car. We know what to do with the car. We put the best oil in. We, we occasionally buy the little bit more expensive fuel to flush out the, the rubbish fuel. We understand how to do it with the car, which is sad. <laughs> Because <laughs> we can change the car eventually. We can't change this. Um, how do we start to look after our gut? I think that, that, let's start there. Well, the key is slowly. So going from standard American diet to fiber-rich, probiotic foods, all of that kind of stuff, that's quite a shock to the system. So sometimes people start to introduce loads more, you know, healthy food, shall we say, um, and they get a bit of a shock because they get symptoms or they get bloating, etc. So slowly is the, the number one word. But then it's just about your, your bacteria are living organisms. And what they use as fuel is fiber and sugars. So essentially, 
to feed them most maximally to nourish your bacteria, it's about having fibrous vegetables, mostly. Um, sometimes grains as well. So things like oats have quite a lot of um, insoluble fiber, which is very useful for, for bowel movements. You might have heard that oats will support that kind of function. Um, but ultimately, it's all about fiber, soluble and insoluble. And if you're thinking fiber, you're automatically in the vegetable world, which means that all of your... Even your starchy vegetables contain goodness. Um, it's all of the vegetable matter that is supremely good to just feed your bacteria. And it's not so you don't have symptoms. That's really, I'm really clear about this with my patients. You're not feeding your gut bacteria because you want them to be quiet and not give you problems. They actually optimally do stuff for you. So they help you break down your food. They support your gut lining, which lowers gastrointestinal inflammation. They keep everything going along. They create vitamins and minerals and short chain fatty acids and all these wonderful things. So we need to look after that population. And the start is fiber and, and vegetables, mainly fruit and vegetables, but eating the fiber of them. So eat the orange, don't have orange juice, all of that kind of stuff to start. The next layer is probably adding in fermented foods. So you can add in things like sauerkraut and kimchi, kombucha also, it's a drink. Um, all of these things can support, I mean, they're, they're fermented. There is bacteria in fermenting foods. It's a bit gross if you think about it and you don't have this respect for bacteria. But if you get sauerkraut, within that fermented cabbage mixture is prebiotics and probiotics. And they're brilliant to help seed your gut in a way that is completely, it, it just supports this ecosystem to self-manage. Because um, so much of gut troubles come because it hasn't had, exactly as you said before, it hasn't had the support it needs to regulate itself. So it needs, sometimes it needs pulling back online. But you don't need to do anything other than that a lot of the time. You can do all of this through food and through changing your diet. Your gut biome has to change because it has to build the bacterial populations that can now break down the foods that you're eating. Um, and that can often just reset everything. Um, and adding in some fermented foods can help that, that whole balance shift. You can go as far as taking probiotics. And they're always useful, particularly as a kickstart, if you want to change things. Um, it's a bit of a myth that probiotics seed in the gut. They don't. We don't really have a strain that we put in and, and the gut goes, oh, yes, we'll have this and we'll let it grow. But what probiotics tend to do is reshape the way that the gut biome is uh, behaving. And it can they can support the gut biome itself to re-regulate. And that's quite a nice thing to do as a, as a kickstart, as an add-on, and particularly if you're having symptoms. So... Probiotics have been studied in, in non-ill patients and in ill patients. And the evidence is quite weak in not ill patients. By ill, I mean just gut symptoms, which you know a lot of people have. But having a probiotic in your life is, is great to have if you've got any kind of gut complaints at all. Like you say, this kind of non-specific IBS stuff. Um, it's always useful to take some probiotics to support the repopulation of the gut. That's brilliant. Um, back to the fiber for a second. I, I, I normally don't ever believe in any statistics by anybody because a good friend of mine dr malcolm kendrick wrote a book called doctoring data and once you yeah. start to get under the hood of research i just don't believe anything but there is an interesting one that i kind of get the numbers kind of irrelevant but the world health organization many many years ago said we should be eating around 35 grams of fiber a day now whether it's 35 40 25 it's kind of irrelevant but the yeah. point is that's a hell of a lot of fiber and their statistics for 
all mortality and heart attacks. I mean, like, if you can get to 35 grams of fiber a day, they reckon, again, with a pinch of salt a little bit, um, it halves your chance of a heart attack. I mean, there's a significant, you know, whether, again, whether it's halving your chance or dropping down even by 10%, you know, there's, some, there's real benefits of having lots of fiber. And, and when you look at that standard American diet and what lots and lots of people have eaten, they can go through the day virtually no fiber. They can start off, you know, with, with, with a bit of junk in the morning and then just the pasta at lunchtime, very little fiber. And, you know, you can, you can see whole families having whole days without any vegetables at all. And, and like you say, that, you know, that, that's the king of getting fiber. So, so if vegetables are important, is there any, is it the crucif cruciferous family or is there anything in, you know, if somebody comes to you with, with stomach problems and they don't eat a lot of greens, and maybe it's different in South Africa to the UK, but you know, what do you, what's the first thing you go, go and fill your shopping trolley with this, what would that be? Or is it a range? Yeah, so variety is king. Like there are keys, like the cruciferous vegetables will do something very specific and they're very useful. Broccoli is like, I think a superfood, it should be. I don't love the term, but you know, we know what we mean when we say it. It's brilliant, nutritious. Um, green and the chlorophyll compounds are really important and all of the goodness in, in the sulfur, sulfurous nature of these kind of cruciferous vegetables, really good for us. Um, but the other interesting bits of research, and I'm a bit like you with research, you kind of like question quite a lot of it, but general themes are perhaps well respected. And polyphenols is one of those things that we keep seeing, oh gosh, it's so important for this and for that. And, and we know it's great for not only gut bacteria and butyrate production, but the gut lining itself. And polyphenols are the compounds that give fruit and vegetables the color. So ultimately, if I'm saying to my patients, go fill up your trolley with, it's like a variety of different colors. Like the phrase eat the rainbow is, is literal. Like you need to be eating, you know, peppers and aubergines and you know, even tomatoes and, and all of those kinds of, and carrots and, you know, sweet potatoes and all of these things, which can give us all of these colors alongside all of the green leafies, which are super nutritious, super fibrous. Like if you're thinking anything cabbagey, we know that it creates a bit of bloating sometimes because that's what it does. It's feeding your gut bacteria. That's how it's working. So it's all of these things that we need. Um, and actually, the reason I say variety is because if you overdose on your cabbage, you can get negative consequences. So spreading it all out is very, very sensible. But also it gives you all of these micronutrients. Like you, you mentioned, you've mentioned it a couple of times and I love it. It's like we're overfed and undernourished and we think of nourishment and we're like, oh, like calories and macronutrients. But actually the micronutrients, the little chemicals that, and the, the vitamins and minerals in all of our foods, the reason why variety is king is because we need to eat a whole spread of stuff to get everything that we need for our systems to run on full steam. Yeah, we, we, when we're trying to teach parents, um, you know, Got to cut down the cereals because cereals just you know, turn into sugar. Then your kids at 11 o'clock are at school. They're hungry again. They've got the, what we call the carbo coaster. You know, mm -hmm. Is there a different alternative for breakfast? And what we call it, we call it colouring in breakfast. And we say, try one day and go red, and then green, then blue, then orange, then yellow, because then you've got to start thinking about, well, what can I put in there to be yellow? So now I've got to go, although I'm not a big fan of bananas, because they are, obviously, if you're trying to lose weight, yeah. not the best thing. But then if you're going to go yellow, well, you're going to put a banana in, you maybe put a bit of pineapple in, and then the next day you're going to go green, so what can you put in there? And, and by teaching them to colour in breakfast, you then get a bit of everything, and then, because the, like you say, if you just keep having the same, 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 it will be full of nutrients. Nutrition, but there will be gaps in your nutritional sort of portfolio 
and that may be causing you a problem, that one gap. And, uh, and then when, by colouring in things, we even do a brown one, and it, it tastes great because we put loads of chocolate in, of course, proper chocolate, <laughs> and uh, the kids love it. They just absolutely love yeah. it. So, yeah, colouring her in, variety, filling your, uh, your shopping trolley with as many different colours as you can and then finding different ways to cook it. Uh, I, I guess you've got a strong view on organic over pesticides, herbicides, and uh, when, especially if you're looking at the gut. Yeah, I do in, in as much as I can. So I'm a very realistic practitioner in that you have to do what you can. So ultimately, if you're transitioning from standard American diet to vegetables, that's a win, you know, and eat more, uh, drink more water, like we've already won. But if we can make that water filtered, perhaps, and then buy the organic vegetables, particularly the ones that grow above ground and therefore get sprayed, etc. Um, less important if there's skin on them that you're going to take off. All of those kinds of thought processes. It's just about trying to do the best you can. Um, I do try and eat organic when I can. I'm going this afternoon to pick up my delivery of organic fruit and vegetables. So we do do that stuff here. Um, and I try and invest in organic produce as much as is possible um and particularly in the fruit and vegetables it's actually quite easy and it you know it's not price it's not too price different but also they taste like actual fruit and vegetables i mean when was the last time you tasted a tomato that was commercially grown that tasted like a tomato it's like it, they just don't taste like tomatoes carrots are the same um so i like to keep my produce as clean as possible I don't love all the words clean and, you know, clean eating got a really bad reputation, but there is a need to keep it toxin free. Back to that very first sentence of managing stress, like everything that you take into your body that's a pesticide, a toxin, a, you know, something that's been sprayed on the, either on the vegetables or into the water that feeds the vegetables, that's going to have consequences. It's going to take work for your body to deal with. And the reason you need these nutrients to begin with is because your body's always doing work. So why add work to the issue? <laughs> like, why not just like eat better? Um, and so if it's affordable um, and you can access good food, then yes, organic is, is better. I think what you just said nails it absolutely perfect that, you know, the first thing is get into eating the right food and then, you know, and then when you can, try and go organic where you can. And great advice, like you just said, you know, if it's, I don't know, make, make one up, a coconut, don't obsess about it because it's got this hard shell on the outside. So yeah. maybe obsess about the extraction process, but maybe not so, but, uh, but if it's a big leafy green, like a spinach or something where the surface area is huge, then always maybe try and go organic because you know, bigger surface area, more chance for the, I guess, the pesticides, the herbicides, the, the whatever to, to reside on, on, on the produce. Yeah, and you also just have to recognise that you might get a bit more soil in your vegetables and you might get like get the odd bug. But that means it's been closer to nature. Like, that means it's been through less. Like, if you think of those salad bags that you get where every leaf is pristine and washed and slightly wet, and you, you, your brain has to go, how do they manage this? Like, how how is this kind of pristine salad suddenly <laughs> in a bag? And at that point... I try and teach my, my patients pattern interrupts. Like, just think a little bit about it. Because, yes, it's maximally convenient to just open a bag of salad and tip it onto a plate. But for anything to be convenient, it has to have been processed. Brilliant, brilliant advice. Now, somebody told me something the other day, a good friend of mine came round, and, uh, you know, 
I think I normally trump him on food. But, <laughs> but he came round and I was preparing a meal. And uh, I'd bought grated cheese, uh, you know, in the bag just to save a bit of time. And he went, I thought you'd know better than that. So what do you mean? It's just cheese, just being great. Yeah. Any quick win that, that doesn't have a health consequence, I'm, I'm quick wins. He went, naughty Steve, naughty Steve, don't buy it grated. He said, because have you ever stopped and thought about when the cheese is grated, how do they stop it becoming one lump? They're using yeah. chemicals and powders to... And I'm like, I hadn't ever thought about that. I mean, you just got to go as natural as you can, as often mm. as you can, haven't you? Yeah, so I watched this Food Unwrapped programme and um, it, they were talking about how you get the perfect grapefruit segments in the tins of, like, grapefruit segments, even if they're without sugar and natural and just in fruit juice. You think natural, great. Um, but when you think about, like, getting a segment of a grapefruit as a human being, you cut it in half and you kind of, like, mash the grapefruit segment out and it's a messy process and you end up with bits everywhere. Yeah, those grapefruit segments are, are perfect and they're, they're sort of intact. And the amount of chemicals that goes into getting it that way Way is sickening it really really worried me and I thought oh my god all of these kind of it's like they coat it with this lining of like chemically stuff and you don't taste it but obviously your body has to deal with it your gut has to deal with it so the less processed the better yeah and be careful with what it says on the label quite often because uh, I watched the 60 minute program and they said they can actually say natural strawberry flavor on something but it's not actually natural strawberry flavour. It's natural and strawberry flavour. And how about this one? In a lab in Switzerland, don't ask me how they discovered this, <laughs> but the natural strawberry flavour in this one product that is on the shelves for sale in the UK, right? It's natural strawberry flavour. But the flavour comes from the gland of the bottom of a beaver. It's true. This is gospel true, right? It comes from the gland of the bottom of a beaver, but they're allowed to call it natural strawberry flavour. How do they know that this gland of a beaver's bum tastes... I mean, let's not go there, right? But how frightening is that? They're playing, playing with words. Yeah, it's, it's petrifying. And the, the thing that really worries me is that the most natural flavour things are kids' products. So it's kids' jellies, kids' sweeties, kids', you know whatever they they kind of think that children want junk brightly colored food so the colorings like they've gone one up from chemicals because they know that they can't use all these e-numbers etc but they've gone to like crazy abstractions of hor horrific coloring things and then they're giving them to our young developing humans and it it worries me yeah yeah, and I, I guess that growing child, you know, everything's growing, so the gut's developing, um, mm. and, and therefore it's probably the time you've got to be most critical of, of looking after the gut, probably. Absolutely. I mean, I obviously from birth you need to be thinking about it, but you know the birth process, the early years of life, exposing kids to dirt and microbes, and you know. It, get their immune system working properly that's that's all really important and then when they start to wean like i see all these weaning foods <laughs> it's like there's a processed food that is going to do nothing for them what we're trying to do is get their teeth working so they're chewing and getting all this mastication so their jaw develops um and when their teeth come in it's it's they've got these muscles to feel that they're kind of adapting you're also trying to get um as much fat into them as possible, because that's the main nutrient that they lose as they're coming off breast milk. It's all the fats from the mother's breast milk. Um, and then, you know, all of the fibres, as soon as they can get those in, that's perfect. So we shouldn't be thinking of children's nutrition as this separate world over here that has to be different. It should just be less 
of the same things that adults eat within reason. So, you know, avocados and, and liver and all of these things. Like, we should give this stuff to our kids. And broccoli, like that, again, kids should love broccoli. Yeah, absolutely. I'm dead lucky at home because my kids actually like strange things like broccoli. They love sprouts, but then again, we jazz them up quite a lot. And, uh, and you know, we, we don't just give them a plate of sprouts. We put it with bacon and other nice herbs all over it. And they, but they love sprouts. And, you know, there is ways to get kids to like stuff. You just got to jazz it up a little bit and be a bit maybe creative in the kitchen. I want to touch on something you mentioned a moment ago, because we live in this world now and there's loads of research that says, you know, kids that grow up on farms, there's not as many of them today, sadly, but kids that grow up on farms, their microbiome is far healthier than those city-dwelling kids where, like my wife, so obsessed with every... You know, we don't just wash the surface down. I've told her so many times. She doesn't just wash the surface down after I finish cooking. Can't make a bit of a mess. She's there with the... You know, night kills 99% bacteria dead. It's all over the house. We've got, we've got bacteria killing things all over our house. And I keep trying to say to my wife, you know, we're over-cleansing, and there's so much research now that says... You know, as a kid, I used to roll around in the mud. I used to play football all the time. We were always getting dirty, and you know, we didn't shower every single day like we get so obsessed these days. Are we getting to a state now where we're damaging our microbiome because we've got obsessed with kills 99.9% .9 of germs dead, uh, and, and maybe even COVID's going to make the matter worse? Have you, got, have you got a view on how we bring kids up, how we live ourselves? Are we, are we obsessing with being overly cleansed and killing all bacteria? Yeah, I think we are. Um, and I've been worried about how much my hands have been sanitized more in the last three months than I think I've ever, like, in my entire life. Like, I don't have antibacterial soaps. I don't, you know, it's all this kind of obsession with killing germs because we've developed this germ mentality um, as if germs are the enemy. And it's easy to see where that mentality comes from. You know, the biggest victory in medical history has been the development of antibiotics to kill life-threatening bacterial infections. It's brilliant as an evolution, and it has meant that our lives are longer and healthier, and we don't die in, you know, very terrible circumstances anymore. Um, and yes, cleaning up the hygiene so there wasn't running water in the middle of the street, etc. massive impact on human health. But because of that germ-phobic mentality, we always then, you know, human beings, it's human nature, it's a little bit's better, more is much better. So we get to the 99%, kills everything dead, you know, it, every, spray every surface with this antibacterial stuff all the time. Um, and there are certain settings where that's definitely wise, hospitals being one of them, but not in the home and certainly not if you have um, children who need to be exposed to the floor, like it's li literally just stick them on the floor and let them get a bit dirty and preferably outside in the soil, obviously. But one of my earliest memories is making mud pies. It's like kids don't make mud pies anymore because there's this like mud phobic attitude of like, oh, what's in the mud? And it's like we are creating issues. And if we look at modern health, if all of the measures that we've brought in from hygiene to you know childhood vaccines to antibiotics to all of these things that we now do to medicalize life in a way if they were supremely effective and brilliant at what they were trying to achieve we'd have the healthiest adult populations possible like we would we'd have no chronic illness no autoimmune disease no constant underlying ibs gut issues etc and we don't, like particularly in the developed world, America here, we've got some of the unhealthiest adult populations and some of the unhealthiest teenage and children populations possible in, in modern history. 
So looking at that data and looking at all of the things that we put in place to try and help, you know, nobody says that like antibacterial stuff was done to damage human health, but it isn't helping. It's creating this kind of unnatural environment, whether that's over clean or just we don't, our kids don't play anymore. You know, it's like, just go outside and be free. But no, we want to sit in front of the screens and have this very sanitized lifestyle. It's not just the sanitization. It's, it's a very clean lifestyle where you're not sending them out to fend for themselves and create their own entertainment. You know, go make a fort. <laughs> just like make your own entertainment. It's all served up on screens. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of sociological thought process. But when it comes to health, we're definitely creating immune irregularities with all of the things we either do or don't do to the immune system in early life. And I guess it's just the same as brainwashing with food, isn't it? That, you know, if you constantly see adverts that go, kills 99% of bacteria dead, you just think all bacteria is bad. And we, you know, you yeah. and I know that in our guts, you know, most of it is good. And even sometimes you want a few of the bad guys in there to, to, to keep the, the ecosystem working. It's not even about completely getting rid of all the bad guys. And then, of course, you take an antibiotic because it's gone, something's gone wrong really bad in the system. But of course, you know, that does what it's supposed to do. And it's life-saving and I'm not having a good go at them, you know, if it, but try and avoid them where you can. Because then you've got to recolonize and rebuild up again, haven't you? So I guess we're, we're over-cleansing. We're probably overdoing the antibiotics probably. And therefore, that, and like you've just said, you know, we aren't as healthy as we should be. And, you know, we're all kind of petrified of like, wash your hands, wash your hands, because if you touch a surface that's had coronavirus and you put it here, you're going to get coronavirus. But I'm really worried. Like if you're if you're like putting alcohol, disgusting cleanser on my hands and then I do this, I'm killing all of my gut bacteria. And it's just like the whole um, the whole what you put on you is really important as well. Like you mentioned earlier about not putting toxic products on you like we don't just have a gut biome, we have skin biomes, we have oral biome, which is hugely important. Um, women have a vaginal biome, which is supremely important to everything. Um, and we, we now think there's a brain biome. And the more, we dis the more we look for bacteria, the more we find them. And the more we realize that actually, they're our friend, not our foe. And as you said, you know, our immune systems, we're not born with immunity to everything. We're born with a, 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 a mutatable like life, nervous system, gut, immune system. They're all buildable from birth. And we're one of the few mammals to have that kind of evolutionary process. Like we're not ready to walk when we come out of the womb. And the process should be this kind of meeting life and tussling back and forth so your immune system learns what's safe, what's not, what's um, healthy, what's going to be what we call a hormetic stress, which is basically, it's a little bit stressful, but we can adapt to it as human beings. And if you remove all of that, this immune system is like this little vulnerable thing that never learns friend from foe, never learns healthy and not. And it's a very strong thought process that the rise and the prevalence of autoimmune diseases, everything from Crohn's and colitis through to Hashimoto's and you know the thyroid illnesses and more, it's a growing thought field that actually it's because our immune systems have not been able to mature like they should have done. That's a great thought and I've never really stopped and thought about it like that before because you're absolutely right, you know, thyroid problems, just look how they're escalating. You know, I, I didn't even know what a thyroid problem was 20 years ago and now my wife's got a thyroid problem, my sister-in-law's got a, two of our best friends. You know, all of a sudden, it, sadly it seems to be females more than gents, but, you know, maybe part of that is obsessing with, with cleanliness as in, you know, avoiding bacteria completely and then a mass of stress 
caused by you know more use, I guess, of you know, perfumes, makeups, and and so on. it may be something as simple as that. Why it seems to be you know hitting you know females in sort of middle age more than than gents. I don't know. Yeah, and when and when you throw food into that mix and you throw like thyroids are our metabolism organ. They they literally dictate how fast our metabolism runs. And if your thyroid thinks it's not got enough energy because you're not giving it nutrients, not just calories, you add all these things together. And typically within human health, there isn't one straw that breaks the camel's back. There can be, there can be accidents, trauma, you know, food poisoning. These things do happen. But most of the time with complex chronic illness, which is why it's so badly looked after in conventional medicine, because they just want the one thing that they're going to give the pill to and fix it whereas it's actually this complexity of factors which just accumulate over time and they're just these stresses which you know five ten of them you can cope with but add on enough and suddenly the body will break somewhere it will fall down and it will keep going for a long 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 time because our bodies are brilliant they're supremely adaptable but there will be that tipping point where suddenly it can't deal with all of the things that you've put towards it or you know made it deal with including emotional and, and life stress as well this is not just food and toxins and it's like everything accumulates yeah and, and that's why you can't just you know i'm not knocking weight watchers you know anything that works for any, you know, any one person i can't not but this way you have to have this holistic approach isn't it you have to and that's why we call it primal you have to look at every area you have to look at the toxins around you, whether you're exposing yourself enough to, you know, getting outdoors and in the mud and, and all the things we need to build about. Then you've got to look at, you know, getting the diet right and then how do you de-stress yourself and are we using too much technology and are we drinking too much? And it, you have to have that, because you just said brilliantly there, you know, it's, it's, rarely is it just one thing that causes, I don't know, you didn't say the word cancer, but you, you know, rarely is it one thing that maybe something triggers it, but it, it, there's lots of these straws happening and uh, you know, one straw might break the camel's back, but it's a probably several things all coming together. And that's probably why we've got, uh, certainly in the UK now, a declining life expectancy, because it is a bit complicated and you've got to step back from it all and, and, and sort of build your own jigsaw, haven't you, really? You do. And like my ultimate goal would be to make people like me completely irrelevant because people are caring for, themself, for themselves from the very beginning and they just look after their vehicles. But the reality is that where we're at right now is that we don't realize the stresses that we're under and the, and the strain that we put our bodies through until it's a bit too late. And and then we go for quick fixes. So you might not want to knock Weight Watchers, but I do, like, regularly. Yes, it will help you lose weight in the short term, and that's wonderful. But the mentality it leaves you with is that food is like this sins or points, or it's like this equation, and it's it's complicated. And you then you, you develop this guilt relationship with food, and it makes this whole weird disordered eating mentality um, for many, many people, many people, like more people than it helps. And it also slows down your metabolism back to the thyroid. If they're putting you on a really restricted calorie diet and yet allowing you to eat these little weird cereal bars, which are basically sugar. And then like, it's, it's just it's so unnecessary when you could walk into the supermarket and just go to that fruit and veg aisle, just do the outer edges of the supermarket. There's no need to go into the middle where all the junk stuff is or where all the Weight Watchers products are and just do it that way. You don't need to develop this weird, oh, that's a that's X points, that's that amount of, you know, it, it just makes no sense. It's not human health, that's just weight loss. And the reality is for weight loss is that, yes, it's about calories, but you have to look at, 
what your calories mean in terms of what does your body do with them? And if it's eating sugar and you're just having this kind of, or even, you know, really refined foods, breads and pastas or whatever, that's really quick. Comes in, burn the energy, wonderful. And if you've got excess energy already, it will store it as fat. That's how calories work. If you're eating vegetables, which your gut has to work on and, and your bowel has to do stuff with, and you're eating things like almonds, like calorie for calorie, almonds are, they look really calorific. The amount of fiber in an almond that your digestive system has to break through and that really helps your gut and your, your gut biome, that's so much more beneficial to you to lose weight as a kind of snack as a handful of almonds than whatever, you know, nut ball bar that's filled with honey or whatever that you can get on, well, you can buy them anywhere, but the, these kind of diet foods, it's not really any need. Just eat proper foods and you'll be very satiated. As you said earlier, proper chocolates, you're really hard pushed to, to eat more than a couple of squares of 85% chocolate. Like it's not, it's not binge food, it's just delicious, filled with chemicals, really useful for weight loss because it satisfies that sweet tooth and you know you don't want to eat the whole bar um same with things like nuts they're really good for you you just don't need like a million of them whereas go to nut butter i've been known to eat whole jars of nut butter when i wanted to so yeah just the less processed the less moreish the more healthy it is and the easier you can control the calories without thinking about it and without making it a mathematical equation. Well, that was brilliant. I'll let you just go off on one then because I hate Weight Watchers, really, <laughs> and all of those things for the exact same reasons as you just said, but I was just treading cautiously, so uh, thanks for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't lead you into that at all, but that was great. I totally agree with you. It's, it, 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 once you start counting cake, because it's not about just calorie deficit. It's not about, you know, eat less, move more. It's way, way different to that because the, the analogy I have, it's, you know, you have to understand macronutrients. You have to understand, you know, protein, uh, fat, and you have to understand carbohydrates. And once you understand a little bit about that, you realize that a calorie isn't a calorie because it's like saying $100 is the same as 100 pounds is the same as 100 euros. Yeah, they're all 100 and they're all a currency, but they all buy different things. And, and it's exactly the same. People need to understand that. Uh, mm -hmm. And it isn't about, you know, just moving more and, and eating less. It's re you've really got to understand having you, that, how that food breaks down. I want to pick up on something you said earlier on then. So um, um, there's a pill for every ill now. Um, so why don't we just wait till we get ill and, and take the pill? It's really funny, actually. I haven't taken medication in so long that it's not even part of my mentality. Um, so I struggle sometimes to think, like on the news, just this morning, they're fighting over who's going to get the medications to treat coronavirus and stuff like that. And it's like the US has campaigned and bought all of them. And I'm like, great, let them have them. <laughs> it's like all of this, we want all the medications because we love a quick fix. Like we love the easy option because we are human beings. And that's a very primal instinct. Let's use the word primal. It's, it's primal to feel like the path of least resistance is the one we should choose because it's less effort. And we still think somewhere that we're kind of hunter-gatherers stalking our food. But when you take a pill, when you take a medication, it's a very unnatural chemical that is trying to interface with natural chemical biology and biochemistry. It will do what it says on the tin most of the time, sometimes not, um, but it never can do that without a downstream metabolic or biochemical consequence. So it is, it does seem easy, headache, take an aspirin or paracetamol or codeine even, 
but why like why do you want to take something which masks a symptom because the symptoms that the body has are there to tell you that something is wrong with your physiology. So you can live life just going, oh, symptom pill, symptom pill. And, and people do. But for me, I'm, <laughs> I still sometimes feel like one of those irritating toddlers that just ask why all the time. Like, why? why? Why is there a headache? Why are we having terrible period pains for women? It's really common. It's a female thing as well. It's just like, as soon as there's a pain, we'll just take a pill. And it's like, can we not ask why? Because Pain is common, but it's not normal. And I think that's the real big distinction that people lose. It's like, well, just because your friend has this issue and takes that pill, you can ask why. And it, it isn't necessarily going to be obvious in the moment when you've taken one pill that it's having a consequence. But if you develop that mentality of always taking the quick fix and the lazy option and never asking why, your headache that could be a symptom that your, you know, your gut biome is really struggling to break down food, or maybe you've got a food intolerance that you're not paying any attention to. If you keep popping that pill, somehow your body's gonna start screaming louder and louder and louder, and eventually a headache symptom, relatively minor, you can deal with it, is actually gonna manifest in, in full-fledged illness. So it's not, it's not always wise to just um, get the symptoms to shut up. It's always wise to go, well, why is that there? Yeah, I mean, some great things you talked about there. That, that's well, three things I want to pick up on there, really. So, I mean, you just mentioned we've never talked about this ever, so it's quite interesting. Um, so, uh, wrong time of the month. Uh, I'm just thinking of my daughter here. She's uh, 16. She has really bad periods. Is there is there things you can do with your diet, uh, you know, other than taking you know uh, things to, to numb the pain? Is is there something you can do at that time of the month in particular, or? Yeah, so, well, it's not, and then that's the thing. So <laughs> the male version of endocrinology, so hormone stuff, is about an A4 page. The female version is literally like an encyclopedia. So female hormones are stupidly complicated, and they're also really poorly tested, because if you think about hum human trials, in order to test something with a woman, you have to do it all over the course of the month because of the different hormones, which is why so many studies are done on men. Um, which gives women a very great disservice in terms of all medical research. But when it comes to female hormones, they are complicated, um, but they're all, they should exist in balance. And health will give you balanced hormones. So nutritionally looking after yourself is the best start. There are some genetic factors to all of this, and oftentimes um, a daughter will manifest some of the symptoms of the mother because hormones are coded for production genetically. So there is sometimes a little bit of a genetic layover in terms of experience. Um, but the whole thing about uh, hormones is it's very common to have slight issues, to feel slight pain, to feel a little bit, but chronic awful, horrible pain where you feel nauseous and you can't, you can't do anything because you're that ill is often a sign that your hormones throughout the month are a little bit imbalanced. Working out how does involve working with a practitioner um, because you can just symptom, symptom look and, and try and piece together estrogen dominance, progesterone dominance, look at what's happening. But ultimately, what you're dealing with with hormones is the production of them. So you need to make them. So you need lots of good, healthy fats because the backbone of all steroidal hormones is cholesterol. It's fats. So all of your really nourishing fats are really important. Um, and that's, you know, that's why the 80s and 90s where it was low fat everything. 
a lot of women got menstrual issues because of this lack of fat. Um, but you also need to detoxify them. So in order to make uh, things like estrogen, you need all the fats, but then you also need a lot of um, detoxifying chemicals. And, and again, we're back to the green leafy vegetables. There's a lot of detoxification chemicals within green leafy vegetables and also things like onions and garlic. So mostly that needs to be throughout the month. You can't just think, oh, pain, resolve it then. And that's the huge difference within kind of systems biology versus conventional medicine. We're, we're never resolving pain in the moment. We want to make the pain not happen by having a long-term strategy. But if you get to that menstrual time and you are craving things like chocolate, which is common, or um, you, know, you really want a steak, etc., that's also common because your body's losing iron and it needs more magnesium at that time of the month. So taking the minerals also having some dark chocolate if you want to can really, really help. And so for people with menstrual issues, if that's irregularity or it's um, real pain around the time of the cycle, I really would recommend just Google's a great function if you're not using it to self-diagnose, but try and find the, the, the professionals who talk openly about all of this sorts of stuff. I have a colleague who's an expert in PCOS and she, she writes about it all the time, free on her Instagram, because we don't talk about this as women. We don't talk about, oh, it's so much pain this month, etc. And it, that reason that we don't realize that actually pain is optional. So balancing your hormones is a little bit nutrition. It's a little bit nutrients and supplementation. Sometimes we just need a little bit more because our vegetables are not full of the nutrients that they once were. Um, but it also involves like a long-term strategy, like thinking about it over the course of the whole month so that you can really have a healthy cycle where your hormones all peak and you get a perfect ovulation and then things drop and they don't drop so low that suddenly you're cranky as hell, you annoy everybody in your life and you're in real pain. And it's normally that, it's normally a real drop in hormones that you just, it really bottoms out and you, you don't have enough resilience and that's not normal. That's brilliant advice. Thank you very much for that. Um, talk to me about things like uh, gluten intolerance, uh, lactose intolerance. A friend of mine the other day said, oh, so, I'm so unlucky. I'm lactose intolerant, I'm gluten intolerant. I went, unlucky? You're the luckiest person I know. You know these are things we're not designed to eat. So therefore, uh, your, your body's just sending you a warning signal and it's the rest of us that have got a problem. Is that, was that a silly thing to say? Or, 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 or I mean, enlighten me on, the, on this area. <laughs> No, so gluten and gluten's never a health food. Like, it's not. I think that there has been a bit of gluten fear-mongering, if I'm 100% honest. I think that, yes, we are not evolved to eat masses of grains as if it's the base of our diet. But technically, the gut biome should finish off the job of breaking down gluten. The reason it doesn't is because of a long antibiotic history, and so we are generally not able to break down gluten fully and properly. Many people, that doesn't really cause much of an issue. But in many people, it can cause serious issues. And I always come back to the fact that if you're eating for optimal health, why would you put in something that's going to create loads and loads of work for you, for your gut biome, for your you know, liver, to get just all of that again? So gluten is never, never a health food. Um, I don't think we need to be gluten Nazis about it. I don't think there has to be this really prejudiced attitude and everybody's intolerant to gluten, you just don't know it. Because I think that... I, I'm a very passionate believer in mindset around nutrition, and I don't believe in creating enemies anywhere, um, except with like not nutrition, like fake foods, because they're not really foods. Um, and dairy, you know, dairy is a funny one. It's, it can be supremely beneficial in the right way, in the right quantities, 
in the right context. But when I say dairy, I don't mean the milk that you can currently buy on the supermarket shelves in the UK or here or anywhere. I mean, you know, go to a farm, milk a cow type milk. You know, that's healthy milk, raw, unpasteurized, unprocessed, non-homogenized, stuff that it's illegal to sell, bizarrely, because it's they're, they're so worried about what might be in it that they never let farmers sell it. There are some farmers who will. Um, but that's dairy. <laughs> that is proper... GLA rich, it's a specific fatty acid, so you can get butter that's made from that kind of dairy, and that's brilliant. But what we're seeing is, is not just lactose intolerance, but dairy protein intolerance, and the two are different. So lactose is the milk sugar, and that will tend to cause upper gut digestive issues or diarrhea, a lot of bloating, burping, all that kind of stuff. The dairy protein issue is much more of an immune thing, and it's very linked to gluten intolerance. And a lot of people don't do well with dairy, causes acne, just creates this kind of phlegm in the throat, all of those kinds of things. And that's largely because it's not, again, it isn't a health food in the way that we tend to consume it because eating, drinking a pint of milk that's from a cow but has been through endless processes to get to your bottle of milk, that's not, it's not dairy as it should be. It's, it's, a, it's a fake food. Yeah, so quite often then it's not actually it's not intolerance to the actual natural food. It could be intolerance to the process of getting it, you know, to the state where we currently consume it. Um, mm. And when you look at some of these <laughs> low, low, low-fat milks, and it's like skim, skim, skim. It's just it's coloured water by the time. <laughs> coloured water with chemicals. <laughs> yeah, it's and it, when you think of what you would drink or put that on. And this is the thing that I do with food. It's like, well, why do you want to drink milk? Because you want to put it on cereal. Well, what's the cereal? Let's just like, make this really reductionist and go, why is it necessary? Like, I don't think I've had milk in so long or um, bread. You know, I, I just don't think about it in terms of I need that to spread stuff on. I'd rather put things on a lettuce leaf, you know, like a burger in a lettuce leaf rather than a bun. Yeah, absolutely. We make this gorgeous, gorgeous biscuit at home just out of flax seeds and some other <laughs> seeds. And we just stick it. It's so easy to make. You just shove it in the oven, they come out. And then if you can find your natural cheese, put it on the top, you know, it's, it's great. And you, you forget mm. that bread even existed. <laughs> you know, in my house, there is no bread. There is milk because my little one still likes it. But I've told him by when he turns five, that's it. He's got to come off. <laughs> The milk, uh, but the, yeah. Uh, talk to me about um, IBS. Talk to me about how um, I spoke to uh, Zoe Harkin once, and uh, she said somebody's got IBS. There's like a whole list of things that could be causing it. So you cut those out, then you can start adding back in and back in and back in till you find out, you know, what it is that's tr triggering the problem. Is that a process you agree with, or have you got a different sort of spin on that? Yeah, no. So um, IBS is not a thing. Like anything that ends in syndrome is just a collection of symptoms, including, by the way, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Like, and I, it's technically a genetic condition, but it's just a collection of symptoms that we've thrown a label onto. Um, irritable bowel syndrome is a, oh, you've got a dodgy gut thing. Uh, we don't really know what's causing it. It's probably psychosomatic or stress-induced. Go away. That's the typical approach. And it is very important that we do validate that there is a, a stress component to gut conditions. But it's not the be-all and end-all. And back to how do we define stress? So, yes, emotional, mental stress, 
important but stress can also come from nutrition um because like you can be intolerant or have difficulties digesting lots of things so so he's absolutely right elimination diets are the gold standard of how we identify what you're intolerant to again people want the quick fix people say to me can you do me a food intolerance test can you i'm like no i i literally don't sell them in my practice i don't do food intolerance tests with people because the best way to do it is to eliminate all of the the aggravating foods and slowly add back in and then you work out when your symptoms are triggered that's the food that's causing it and if you're looking for the aggravating foods list the most common is to go on a sort of paleo diet which removes uh, gluten dairy uh, all kind of grains actually Um, so it removes quite a lot of all the grain fibers etc but leaves all of the vegetables in um, And certain times, if people have autoimmunity or other conditions, we go all the way to an autoimmune paleo protocol, which actually removes a lot of the things that we've just spoken about as being good. So nuts and seeds, eggs, nightshade vegetables come out because they they contain these little hormetic stresses, like I mentioned before, which slightly aggravate the immune system. And when you're healthy, that's adaptive and and progressive. But if you're unhealthy, that can be a little too much for your immune system, trigger your autoimmunity. And then there's whole processes of slowly adding stuff back in. Um, And what you're looking for is the moment where your body feels, oh, I can't cope with that. And then you're learning your own bespoke perfect diet. And that's the ultimate goal, knowing what suits you, not going to a diet book and and finding somebody else's solution and the diet books and the the cookery books then you can know how to take somebody else's nutrition plan and actually make it really yours that's absolutely fascinating fascinating advice um and 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 and, because it is you know and of course we're not knocking doctors ever i think doctors do a great great job but they've only got a few minutes and most of them have never done any uh i i find it horrific that you know they go to med school for five to six seven years sometimes and they never discuss nutrition and most doctors i speak to and i I thought it's a joke at first oh you're all lying you probably did a month and you forgot about it but every doctor i speak to says maybe had one lecture on it some say we had a day on it but they don't do nutrition first of all then of course they're under so much stress when you go in you've only got a few minutes and therefore that's why they don't sort of identify what the problem with IBS but you've just hit it beautifully then you just eliminate certain things and find out what it is that, that's probably causing the problem that might be oversimplifying it but but it certainly sounds a, a good way of addressing it because so many people are suffering today with IBS mm-hmm. yeah and every time you think oh my gosh I'm oversimplifying something health should be simple <laughs> like it really should be it's not human systems are complex they're not complicated and they do a very good job of running themselves provided they're given the right bits and pieces to do that job they they take care of it we have an autonomic nervous system which regulates your breathing your blood pressure your blinking your saliva production like literally your hormones everything like you don't need to think about it if you needed to think about it your life would be exhausting but if you don't give that system the, everything it needs, the nourishment, the um, the care, you know, self-care, you, getting your, um, your space, your time, your exercise, all of these things help your body just run more efficiently as a vehicle. And it is very easy for things to go wrong, but it also should be very simple to bring things back into line just by going all the way back to basics and going, okay, let's just take this one step at a time. And, uh, you know, as you said, I I have a lot of patience for doctors. I have a lot of time for doctors. They saved my life. Like, I would not be here without conventional medicine um, several times. But 
for the complex, chronic, underlying, vague, there's something wrong staff, the system that they are working within and the mentality that they are trained into is just not set up for understanding that. And in a way, it, it makes me happy because people get to be their own doctors. They get to be their own practitioners. They get to navigate their own route to health. People like me in the kind of alternative or complementary or functional, whatever we're talking about in terms of the, the medical world that I inhabit, we can be, we can signpost, we can help people understand, we can resolve the more complex issues if biochemistry has gone really wrong and we need to treat parasites or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or there's some kind of immune complication, etc. But actually, the end result of, of working with me is that you should feel empowered with all of the education that you need to run your own health without needing me or any other you know medical professional except in a time of acute need when you know car accidents you know terrible things go wrong that's what hospitals are set up for they are perfect for that um but not just not for all this like chronic lifestyle illness which is what we're now facing as an epidemic yeah, absolutely. Um, and let's finish on. Have you noticed, uh, obviously you've been in South Africa now for, what, three or four months, notice any differences to their approach to, to food, to exercise? Do you, have you, you know, are you seeing any differences or are we now in the, in, the, in the sort of what we call sadly modern world, which is really a terrible world in one way? Um, are we all in the same boat, eating the same junk? doing the same type of exercises or are you seeing some sort of regional differences it's interesting because it depends where you look now exercise is very much a thing here you know in a way that it isn't necessarily by default in the uk and i think that's because of the nature so within five minutes here i can be you know up lion's head up table mountain surfing running along the beach all of that is kind of part of the character of the place um but the nutrition, um, if I go to the general supermarkets here, it is a junk fest. It's a junk food fest and worse than in the UK. You know, you've, the, every packaged product here is made with corn oil or, you know, canola oil or terrible quality fats. And that's like the priority for health. Even the healthy mayonnaise here is made with sunflower oil, not something like avocado oil. So th that's not happening. That, that, there's this kind of and that part of that is the economics it's really cheap to make food like that. So they have to have those cheap foods for the poorer populations. But what is present here is there are farmers markets all the time. There are at least two organic delivery companies here in terms of just in, in Camp Bay in Cape Town and all of that kind of local area. It is very easy to access farms and organic stuff and all of the wine farms, which are about you know an hour away from here, or less actually, um, they all have like chickens running around so they have their eggs for sale and they have their, you know, whatever they've managed to grow. And the restaurants, the proper quality restaurants tend to use those foods. So there's a very much a, a barter culture where the local farms and the restaurants kind of get, make sure that the food in the restaurants is really good quality, but there is still the junk. And it is, it's, I was having this conversation just yesterday with a friend actually, and it's kind of worrying that the children that you can see walking around here do look a bit on the, the larger side and they're always walking along drinking a bottle of fizzy drink. And it's, it's you know, it's spreading. And it is, it's a, it's a shame that the economy and the fact that it's way cheaper to buy a huge loaf of bread than it is to buy an apple, it, that's, that's the problem. And it's, 
it's it's an interesting place to be and I wish it was different I wish it felt more different but it doesn't all the time unfortunately I think that's the journey we're on though isn't it you know, we want to educate everybody and then they can make their own decisions I mean you know, and it's a constant learning curve for everybody you just mentioned mayonnaise people think well mayonnaise is healthy it's made with eggs but but most of it's oil what is the oil that they put in it and if it's vegetable oil or seed oil then it's, it's really unhealthy but if you make it yourself with olive oil and you can make your own mayonnaise and that, then, then it, you know, so it's, it's this whole education process and I think we, we're hoping governments will make changes, they never will make changes. You know, it, it, us as consumers we've got to educate as many people as we can to what good health looks like. Then we'll get the subsidies for those types of foods, you know, when it's cheaper to buy, like you just said, a loaf than it is an apple, subsidies are wrong somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's got, we've yeah. got to subsidise people to produce the right food. But that will only happen when all consumers start going, well, I'm not going to have that can of Coke. I'm not going to eat so much bread. I'm going to have more of this, this and this. Then the governments are going to have to subsidise it so we can all afford it. And, but that's why we just got to keep doing what you do, what we all do. And let's just keep getting that message out, what, you know, what real food looks like. And, you know, let's, I keep saying, we're trying to add life to yours. It'd be great if we can get life extension back to where it was. A male today in the UK, once he's past 20 years old, has a lower life expectancy than a male in 1870, the Victorian era. When you take out child death and death below yeah. the age of 20, we're not living as long as we did then, because back then, we, every class, there was a, about a four or five year period where uh, we were over farming and every class uh, of, of people in the UK had access to real food. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and you just go, and since then, like you said earlier on, you touched on it brilliantly, you know, we've, we've got uh, good medication, it saved your life several times, I'm sure it saved mine once or twice, you know, um, so in theory, <laughs> we should all be getting to about 120 and yeah. not on loads of medication, just when we yeah. need it, not daily, you know, dealing with chronic stuff with pills for this, pills for that. We should be adding life to yours, you know, we should get to about 105, drop dead, and, 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 and that's the way to go. And it's just not like that. We're not living as long. And that last quarter, the last half of many people, it's just a, a cocktail of pills just masking symptoms and not making the most of it. Yeah, and we call it health span. So not lifespan, but health span. Um, and it really does, it, it, again, it's back to this, it's common, but it's not normal. We just expect to get old age conditions. We haven't really questioned whether we need to. And I think that we, it, the onus is on every single person to not necessarily demonstrate or protest, but literally choose where they put their money in terms of, the companies that we choose to invest in, the, the foods that we choose to say, look, this is what we want on our shelves. Where we, where we put our resources, our money, speaks louder to governments than anything else. Yeah. So it really does require everybody who feels anything about whatever cause it is, even if it's you know the, the whole Black Lives Matter thing, which has really touched me because of where I'm living and the fact that there's blacks and there's coloreds and the whole racial situation here is really different, but it also influences health. Socioeconomic factors influence health so so deeply. But that to make a change, we have to invest differently. We have to actively choose to say to the world, not openly, you don't have to announce it on Instagram. You just need to take your money and put it into where you want change to move in the direction of. And that is, that's not only healthy for your body, but it's also healthy for your soul because you're making a difference. 
I'm going to end there because that was. I'd, I'd got another four or five questions. That was a beautiful ending. <laughs> it's been absolutely fabulous talk to you. Uh, thank you for your insights. It's been really, really wonderful. I think people are really going to love the show and uh, look forward to speaking to you again, Victoria. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to speak to you, Steve. Lovely. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go, though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fats and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FFPODCAST and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.